Genesis 34, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Genesis 34, beginning in verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem and the young man did not delay to do this thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people." Every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. 
They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to hear and understand by the work of your Spirit, your Word. This Word written by Moses for the people of Israel as they left Egypt and for your people in every generation. May the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, speak to us, his people, by the Spirit, through the Word, so that we might learn the lessons being taught here. Help us to understand what it was that you were doing in the life of Israel, in the life of Jacob and his sons, in the midst of their clear wickedness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, perhaps my favorite books to read are historical biographies. I tend to buy historical biographies and read historical biographies. And when historical biographies are really well done, I find that the lives of the people who came before us are fascinating and challenging and sobering. Sometimes historical biographies are written more like hagiography. Hagiography is the story, if you will, of saints. It's as if the person in the story had no sin. You read it and you think, not only am I challenged by this, I don't think I've ever met a person who lived this way, this well, my entire life. But the real good biographies are the ones that serve as an encouragement to and really example of moral living and heroic action, and at the same time, they serve to sober us about the realities of the fallenness of even our greatest heroes. That, if you will, everyone walks with a limp. I bring this up precisely because the Bible gives us some starkly realistic pictures of its characters. It's a book that, that pulls no punches about the abhorrent falls and godly examples of our fathers in the faith. And this morning, really, we want to continue the story of one of our fathers in the faith, Jacob. In this chapter, really, Moses begins to turn our attention from Jacob proper to really considering the sons of Jacob, the sons who head the 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, our fathers in the faith. Now, we will hear about Jacob, but we begin to hear even more. We get to, if you will, turn in the book of Genesis to Jacob's sons. And friends, the picture of Jacob and his sons is not pretty. It is ugly and twisted and disappointing. Think of this. The Lord superintended the writing of a book that shows in stark reality the depths of sin among the heroes of our faith. The Lord does so because the Bible is not, we need to be clear about this, the Bible is not the unfolding revelation of the good men who came before us. The Bible is the unfolding revelation of an immeasurably 
gracious God who saves sinners in his son, Jesus Christ, the only truly good man to ever walk among us. So let's consider this story in Genesis 34 in that light. Now let me add that this may be the most shocking and least attractive picture of God's people in all of Genesis. So here's what I want to do as we come to our text today. First, I want to walk through this troubling story. So we're going to walk through this troubling story in three scenes. So just walk through the three scenes of the story. And then second, I want to draw out four, if you will, implications or maybe brief lessons for us today. What do we do with this passage in our own lives? So let's walk through the story briefly in three scenes. Here's the first scene, the rape of Dinah. The rape of Dinah. Let's look at that scene. Genesis 34 and verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she'd born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Now I want to, I just want to pause here for a second. It's unusual to get a story about a woman in Genesis. It's unusual. Um, It's unusual for a woman to show up in a genealogy. But if you remember when Jacob marries Leah and Rachel and then takes on the two concubines, when Leah's having children, there is one female named in that list of children. That, that female is Dinah. That, Dinah is named precisely because there's an important story that's going to come up about her. And here's the story. Now, mind you, she's the daughter of Leah. And if you remember, Leah is not the wife that Jacob prefers. And Leah's children are not the children that Jacob prefers. And you might say, what a horrible thing that is. Yep, that's exactly right. It's awful. And it's the reality of the situation. Dinah is going out, if you notice that, what does it say? She went out to see the women of the land. Dinah going out to see the women of the land is for her to go out and spend time with pagan women. Depending on how the Hebrews translated here, it's at worst a picture of her looking to mingle with pagan men like a cult prostitute. This language is sometimes picked up of a cult prostitute. That's the worst case scenario. The best case scenario is that she's being really unwise in the company she keeps. That's kind of the broad spectrum, if you will, on Dinah. She's either being incredibly unwise, wanting to wander out and hang out with pagan women who are, if you will, doing troublesome things, or she, she wants to go out and, as a kind of cult prostitute. Look at verse 2, though. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, Hamor is the, basically the king or the tribal leader, Shechem is the prince. When the Hivite, the Hivites are a pagan people, when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her. Now notice how fast these verbs came. When he saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Those verbs are coming really quickly because the scene is he sees Dinah, he seizes her and lays with her and humiliates her. This is a, this is a way of talking about rape. That's what's happening here. Dinah's being raped by this prince of the land. Now, we get a really interesting next comment. Look at verse 3. And his soul, that's Shechem's soul, was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. That, for the soul to be drawn is like 
Um, literally, it, the Hebrew is like, his soul is stuck to her. It's actually picking up um, the imagery of, for example, Genesis 2.24, where a, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's as if their souls mingled, if you will, in this act. His soul stuck to her, and he spoke tenderly. Look what it goes on to say. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. This kind of language here is a speak tenderly or kindly or encouragingly. You'll see the same word picked up in Genesis 50 um, when, when Jacob speaks, or Joseph, sorry, encourages the people of Israel. It's the same kind of language. So basically, he grabs this young woman, rapes her, and out of that, decides I love her, I want to stay with her, and I'm going to encourage her. I'm going to come alongside and say, I know you're humiliated, I know this was terrible, but I love you, I'm going to make it right, I'm going to take care of you, etc. Friends, it's difficult for us to think through. Is Shechem in verse 3 repentant? He realized he was wrongdoing and now he wants to repent. Is he going to care for Dinah? It's difficult, but let's speak of the reality. Offenders often speak tenderly, encouragingly, kindly to the person they've harmed. That's not unusual. And at times, at times there's real change. Yet that kind of behavior of spending, speaking kindly or tenderly does not mean there's real change. Doesn't mean it. Look at verse 4. You're going to see it right away. Verse 4. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get this girl for my wife. The literal language is, get this child for me. She's a teenager, but it's, it's, it's a phrase that's demanding and demeaning. Get her for me. Now, what we don't see until later in the passage is that Shechem actually keeps Dinah in his house. He uh, falsely imprisons her. He doesn't send her home prior to the negotiation for marrying her. He kidnaps her and then negotiates for her. And that leads us to our next scene, scene two, the marriage negotiations for Dinah. Look at verse five. Scene two, the marriage negotiations for Dinah. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men, that being the sons, were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Now, I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. It's, it's sad and startling, this passage. Why do I say that? Jacob has nothing to say about the rape and false imprisonment of his daughter Dinah. Nothing. He just keeps silent. This is the daughter of Leah. The wife and children he doesn't seem to care for, and that lack of care shows up here. Leah's brother, Simeon, and Levi, or her brothers, Simeon and Levi, are incredibly angry 
about what has been done to their sister. If you remember, Simeon and Levi are also the sons of Leah from Jacob. And they are incredibly angry about what has been done to their sister. They love her, and they are, if you will, beside themselves with anger. Look at the phrase in verse 7. They say, this little phrase, they're indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. This language, an outrageous thing in Israel, is used throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, to speak to sin that defiles God's people and dishonors God's name. When you defile God's people and you dishonor his name, you've done an outrageous thing in Israel. Levi and Simeon rightly see that this sin against Dinah has dishonored God's people, Israel, and thus has dishonored Yahweh himself. And so we get this response. Look at verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell in it and trade, dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I'll give. Ask for me a great bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me only give me the young woman to be my wife. See, Hamor addresses Jacob and his sons and speaks to Dinah. If you notice that in the first, um, let's see here, in verse 9, make marriages with us, give your daughters, your daughters to us. Or if you look up in verse 8, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. That's a plural, your. In other words, um, Hamor is addressing Jacob and his sons and speaking to Jacob and his sons as if Dinah is their daughter, plural. She belongs to all of them. Uh, her brothers, if you will, we're being told here by Moses, her brothers are, kind, are taking a kind of fatherly care for her. They care about their sister. Men of sovereign grace, we ought to take a similar care for the women in our church. These are our sisters in Christ. We should sense a responsibility to them. In particular, our ministers and elders and deacons bear responsibility to the women of our, of our congregation, and that runs throughout the pastoral epistles. You can see it. So the sons of Jacob seem to have a kind of godly jealousy, seems that way, or righteous anger for their sister at this point. But look at what happens. Um, let's continue in verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, uh-oh, like father, like son. Deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who's uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we'll be gone. See, as Jacob was a deceiver, so too are his sons. By the way, as Abraham deceived 
foreign kings, and Isaac deceived foreign king, and Jacob deceived foreign kings. Now so his sons are doing the same thing. We understand the Jews were not permitted to intermarry with, pe- with pagans. You could offer a bride price and a gift, just so you know. They would give both in the ancient Near East. A, a bride price was, I come to a father who I think daughter would be great for my son, and I say, I will give you this much for your daughter. It's not going to be cash, chickens and goats and what have you, right? For your daughter, okay? That's how you sustain your life. And then there's the gift. I will give this much to to your daughter. Why? Because if the husband dies or divorces her, she has a way to make um, a life for herself. So you give to the parents of the daughter and to the daughter herself so that both of them are cared for in the exchange. But the Jews were not permitted to do that with pagans. They could not intermarry with pagans. That wasn't for ethnic reasons. It wasn't like, well, the Canaanites are a different ethnicity for you and you can't intermarry with other ethnicities. That wasn't the point. It was for religious reasons. Listen to Deuteronomy 7 as it comments on this in Deuteronomy 7.3. Don't turn there, just listen. You shall not intermarry with them, the Canaanites, the people of this land, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away from your sons, excuse me, they turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. In other words, this is the preeminent concern. Do not intermarry with pagans because they will turn you from the Lord. God was concerned that his people not be dragged into idolatry among pagan peoples. This is the same reason we're commanded in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, Christians. Could a Jew ever marry a Canaanite though? So this is a question. Can a Jew ever marry a Canaanite or a Moabite? Or Yeah, they, in fact, they do. They do, but that only is permissible if the Canaanite converted to Judaism. And if that Canaanite was a male, he must be circumcised. The sacrament of circumcision that belonged to the people of Israel was a sign and seal of righteousness by faith. Paul says that in Romans 4.11. It's a sign of a circumcised heart of someone being born again, Deuteronomy. It's a sign that the God of the covenant is your God and you are his people, Genesis 17. It's a sign that points ultimately to the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, who would be circumcised on the cross for our sins. In other words, it's a sign pointing to God's gracious promise. We need to understand this, especially in this context. It's a sign pointing to God's gracious promise to save men from every tribe and tongue and nation in the seed of the woman by the blood of his cross. They used that sign which was a sign of grace to the nations in Christ, they used that sign, pointing to God's gracious promise to save men from every tribe and tongue and nation. They took that holy sacrament and they used it to deceive and destroy a pagan nation rather than to call that nation to salvation. They used the sign of God's gracious blessings to the nations to destroy those whom they were intended to bless. Think of how wicked this act is of Jacob's sons. This is the resolution they offer. We cannot intermarry with you unless you circumcise yourselves. 
But note that they never call them to convert to faith in Yahweh. They're just being wickedly deceitful here. Look at verse 18. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of, the, of their city and spoke to the men of their city. That's the typical thing you would do in that, that time. You go to the gate of the city. You would speak to the men of the city. Elders would give a judgment as to what the outcome would be. So they spoke to the men of the city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell on the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives. Let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will deal, and they, excuse me, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. It, this is a fascinating piece of politics, by the way. Hamor and his son, Shechem, go to the gate of the city and encourage the people to participate in agreement with Israel. And like an effective politician, he tells them how it will benefit them, but he leaves off how it benefits him. He doesn't tell them, by the way, my son raped their daughter, and things are going to go really badly for us if we don't make this agreement. He just says, look how good it'll be for all of you, and just leaves all those important details out. So they all agree to it. And that leads to our third scene, the murderous rampage of Jacob's sons. The murderous rampage of Jacob's sons. Look at verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, you know, you actually end up studying these kinds of things. When a grown man is circumcised, when is he at his weakest? Second or third day, actually, there's actually studies on that. <laughs> so, you know, second or third day, so here they are, here they are, okay? On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. Now this scene, it sort of reminds you of a Liam Neeson movie, like Taken, right? I am going to kill everyone who is even remotely related to this situation. And we watch those movies and because we love justice, we tend to overrun that into loving vengeance. And that's what these men are doing here. They, why, all the other men of the city did not participate in the rape and kidnapping of Dinah, but they are all wiped out. All of them. It goes on, verse 27. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain. So now all the sons of Jacob are involved. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. See, Jacob's two sons, Simeon and Levi, went on a murderous rampage, and as they do, they plunder them of all their wealth, all their wives, all their children. It's a horrific scene. Just horrific. 
what looked like righteous anger and jealousy for God's honor turned into a horrific act of vengeance. It reminds us of a contemporary man, a movie, doesn't it, about a man who goes on a rampage like this. It's just, just like, oh, this is the kind of movies we like to watch. But we know that that sort of justice is really not just. This is a story that begins with rape and ends with deception and mass murder, theft. Now, let's look at the tragic ending of this story. Verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. I've I've got to tell you, this is a shocking statement. This man kept his silence when his daughter was raped and kidnapped. And when his sons went and got her back, his response after his daughter's raped and kidnapped, after his sons deceive, commit really terrible sacrilege with a sacrament, murder a people and take all their women and children, his response is, you've given me a bad reputation. And I'm not sure, what if the other nations get mad at us? You're the man who wrestled with God, whom God changed your name to Israel, which means God fights for you. You're the man who watched God deliver you in every circumstance of your life, even after your deceitfulness. You're the man who, saw, who watched God completely change your brother who hated you so that he loves you and forgives you for deceiving him and stealing his blessing. You're the man whom God met with twice in theophanies. How many of you guys have had a theophany where God appeared to you? None. If you say you did, let's talk. Angels came to you and ministered to you. And all you have to say about your daughter who was raped and kidnapped and your sons who were deceitful and murderous is you gave me a bad reputation? I don't know what the nations will do now. How will we stand up to them? Simeon and Levi rebuke him. And in doing so, justify their own wicked behavior. Look at verse 31. But they said... Should he, that being Shechem, treat our sister like a prostitute? In other words, are we going to receive money in exchange for our sister being raped? Are you going to pimp out your daughter? That's what they're saying to him. Like some kind of whore? We will not permit it. I, I want you to think of this chapter, friends, in the context of Genesis. This follows Jacob obediently returning to the promised land, faithfully calling out to God in prayer, trusting in the Lord's covenant promises. This falls Jacob wrestling with God and receiving a new name, trusting the Lord will fight for him and celebrating the Lord delivering him. This falls Jacob's reconciliation with Esau, a scene in which he saw the God of grace work to overcome his brother's hatred and bring gracious forgiveness, thus bringing reconciliation. This comes after Jacob meeting with the Lord twice, having angels come and minister to him. The Lord provided for him over and over and over. God kept all of his promises. Yet, 
Yet now Jacob is showing little care for his own daughter, Dinah. Jacob is now mostly concerned with his fears regarding the pagans around him. Jacob's sons are deceiving and murderous. This is why I'm driving at this so hard. Is this is a horribly incongruous picture of Jacob. He is up and down. It reminds you a bit, just as an aside, a bit of Peter, doesn't it? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but our God revealed this to you. This is revealed to you by the Lord. Next scene. No Lord from Peter's mouth, Jesus, get behind me, Satan. That's a pretty high high and a pretty low low. You are speaking on behalf of God. Next scene, you're speaking on behalf of the devil. And that's what we're seeing essentially here with Jacob. We're turning really to a, reality, to a really sad, sorry, portrait, a really sad portrait of his sons as well. Jacob's sons are deceivers and murderers. Jacob will condemn Levi and Simeon for this in his blessing in Genesis 49. You'll see this play out in the life of um, Levi and Simeon, by the way. It will be the Simeonites in Numbers 25, um, uh, Simeonites specifically in Numbers 25, who sleeps with a, a Moabite woman at the, at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. And it will be a Levite who goes and drives the spear through that Simeonite, namely Phineas, because he's jealous for God's glory. See, in one sense, Dinah's brothers seem like honorable men who are going to protect their sister and the honor of God's people. In another sense, they're a total wreck. And you're beginning to see an unfolding tale of Jacob's sons that's not pretty. What's going to come up next with Jacob's sons? Well, Jacob's sons will sell their brother Joseph into slavery and break their father's heart, lying to him, telling him he's dead. That's a pretty horrific picture of a man's sons. You also get a, a real contrast with regard to Jacob because there he weeps and beside, is beside himself and wants to die because Joseph is gone, whereas with Dinah, he doesn't seem to care. The very next chapter in chapter 38, right after Joseph sells his sons into slavery, his son Judah will sleep with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. This family, the patriarchal family, the family to whom the covenant promises are given, are being shown to be a train wreck. And we might ask, well, what are we to learn from all that? What are we to learn from all that? There are so many lessons here for Christ's church, I can't possibly go over them all. Jacob's family, as God's covenant people, serve as an example for us. Sometimes they serve as an example of godliness. Sometimes they are a cautionary tale. But in every case, in every case, they're a demonstration of God's amazing grace. So let me draw out four brief lessons for Christ's church today. Four, four, here's the first one. Christians must avoid the temptations of the world. Christians must avoid the temptations of the world. While Dinah cannot be blamed for being raped and kidnapped, she was exceedingly unwise to be lured by whatever she thought the pagan world might have to offer her. 
Young people, children, please listen to this. We must be, you must be wise and discerning. Proverbs 17, 24, the discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. What's, what's, the, what's the wise man saying here? That the wise man fears the Lord and listens to his word. He sets his face toward wisdom. He looks straight at it, and because his face is set toward wisdom, he walks in a straight line. Wisdom is the rule of his life, and all his thoughts and actions and desires are directed toward what is wise. His eye is, if you will, ever on the prize, which is Christ in heaven. His ear is ever attuned to God's word. The fool, though, the fool has his eyes set on the ends of the earth. In other words, what that means is he has wandering eyes. He's just looking around for whatever looks exciting to him, as if all that glimmers is gold. His rule of life is to follow his latest impulse and emotion, to grasp after the latest shiny thing that the world dangles in front of him. His God is his belly. He follows his passions. The fool says in his heart, you do you. Follow your passions. And herein is the era of Dinah. She walks into all sorts of traps and her life accumulates all manner of grief. She had a kind of curiosity about the pagan life that became her undoing. She wanted to keep company with fools and that was incredibly costly to her. It's not merely that bad company corrupts good character. That's true. Bad company corrupts good character. But it's also that keeping company with fools exposes you to all sorts of danger. Flirtation with the world is dangerous. And Christ's church must pursue holiness and avoid worldliness. Second lesson. Christian ministers and elders must not be passive in the face of sin and error. Christian ministers and elders must not be passive in the face of sin and error. Jacob's silence from beginning to end is an indictment on his love for his family and the Lord, isn't it? And a minister who sits by silently as his church is being misled or harmed is a poor excuse for a leader. When Satan slithers into the church and begins to whisper lies into the ear of Christ's bride, it is the ministers and elders, the under-shepherds of Christ, who must feel a divine jealousy for her and take action to protect her from false doctrine and immoral influences. Paul speaks this way. I wish you would bear with me, 2 Corinthians 11, to the church of Corinth. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Why? Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I am afraid, as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Listen, Christian ministers and elders must take the lead in rebuking sin and error in the congregation. And I'm talking about big errors, not minor disagreements. 
errors here that have to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ and its application to God's people. If a minister allows gross, unrepentant sin or false doctrine to go undisciplined in the congregation of Christ's people, then he might seem like a real sweetheart to everyone around, but he cares neither for the honor of Christ nor his people. If you have a passive attitude about Christ's sheep being led astray, then you are a poor excuse for a shepherd. You're probably just a laborer out there who, a hireling, someone who's getting a check, not someone who's laying down their life for the sheep. And I want to briefly add, by the way, that the whole congregation should be concerned about this. We all bear this responsibility at some level. Paul will rebuke the whole Galatian church for not caring about the fact that they were letting a false gospel in the door. Not just the leaders. We all should care about this. Third, Christians must avoid vengeance. We seek peace, not vengeance. We trust God to bring about vengeance. And he certainly will. Listen to Romans 12 just briefly. Repay no one evil for evil. That's what Jacob's sons are doing here. They're repaying evil for evil. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Friends, if we reflected more on the return of Christ, promised in the gospel message that we all believe, then we'd feel less the need to avenge ourselves. Because we would know that Christ is coming with his recompense in his hand. He's actually the only one who ever can and ever will avenge you, by the way. Why? I say that because you have to remember that our ultimate fight is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers in heavenly places. And we know that God will soon crush Satan under our feet. Thus we understand that our greatest battles are fought on our knees in prayer as we wield the sword, of God, the sword of God's word, trusting him to avenge his people, asking Christ to return soon. Fourth lesson, and this is by far the most important of all from this passage. Christians must trust that God's grace is greater than all our sin. This story, along with the next two stories about Jacob's sons, demonstrate the sinfulness of Jacob's sons. That's God's people, Israel. The one with whom God covenants. We're transitioning to the story of these sinful sons and we're left wondering how they could possibly be the heirs of the promise of God's grace given to Abraham. Certainly these promises are not given due to their righteousness. You can see that already. And these promises will not be achieved by the righteousness of Jacob's sons either. Abraham deceived people. Isaac deceived people. Jacob is worse. His sons are worse still. Every male, if you will, of the three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sell out the women they're responsible for to save their own skin. Without exception. That's sick. Further, they're employing a God-given sign, Jacob's sons, a God-given sign of grace in Christ to deceive and enact vengeance. They were using circumcision, 
which points to the Christ being cut for us on the cross, the Spirit regenerating us and giving us new life, they were using that to gain revenge, wives, and wealth. That's wicked. Clearly, these people are not being saved due to their inherent goodness. Given the wicked actions of these men, why does the Lord cause Israel to prevail? That really becomes our question. Listen to what God tells them in Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Now, why did the Lord set his love upon you and choose you? Because he loves you. You hear that? Why did the Lord set his love upon you and choose you? Because he loves you. That's why. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out. That's why the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the, ha- from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God choose them? Because he loves them. Did they do something to deserve his love? No, quite the opposite. His love was set upon them because that's who he is. That's what he decreed to do. And for this reason, he shows unfathomable grace to them. This really is the great lesson or implication of this story. The great lesson or implication here is that God is immeasurably gracious to his people. His grace was set upon us in election before the foundation of the world. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. His grace was set upon us in Christ when we were dead in our sins, rebellious and following the way of Satan. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So listen to this. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Think of that phrase that Paul uses. The immeasurable riches of his grace. What did we do to earn any of that? Nothing. Divine grace is greater than all your sin. You're a creature. All your acts are finite. Your sin, in fact, can be measured. Do you know that? Now, your sin incurs an infinite debt because of the God against whom you've committed it. But do you know what cannot be measured? The riches of God's grace. Friends, your sins, your sins, your deepest, darkest, most wicked acts do not even cause a ripple in the immeasurable ocean of God's grace. You don't exhaust even one 
drop. As Richard Sibbs has said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Friends, there is immeasurably more mercy in Christ than sin in you. He has made promises to you by grace. He will bring them to pass by grace. Here's the question for you. Do you know Christ? Have you looked to him in faith? Are you trusting in him and him alone for your salvation? If not, then I plead with you to cast yourself upon him. He will receive you with joy. And so will we. He will forgive you of all your sins, cleanse you of all unrighteousness, adopt you as his own, and it won't even take a drop. It won't exhaust any of his grace. It's immeasurable. Sovereign grace, I plead with you to never believe the lie that God is in heaven with a small-hearted, closed fist, changeable love for you. The Lord loves you immutably, unchangeably. And that love is inexhaustible. Helpless sinner, remember, God's heart is immeasurably filled with grace for you. Rejoice in that. Sovereign grace, this is always and ever only hope. The immeasurable riches of God's grace. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would be a people who trust in God and his grace in Christ alone. Help us to know, to trust, to believe, to cast ourselves upon your grace, to see Christ by the work of your spirit through faith, to trust in him and him alone, to know that your grace is greater than all of our sin, immeasurably, infinitely greater. And may we look to him. If there are people here who do not know Christ, cause them to trust in Christ for salvation. Cause all of us to walk wisely, grateful for the grace that we've been shown in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.